So I talked about a zootobacter, which is one of the species that uh, it's a free-living microorganism will fix uh, nitrogen by itself. That means it doesn't have to form symbiotic relationships with plants. It could do it at pretty much any time, anywhere, as long as it has uh, the energy it needs to do this. However, uh, here's some numbers that kind of give you an idea of how much nitrogen you can expect some of these species to uh, fix in these soils. We look at cyanobacteria, we, on average we see about 25 kilograms per hectare. Uh, that's about the same as pounds per acre. Uh, Azotobacter is 0.3, which is very little. So if you're you know, using these inoculants for your soil, don't expect you know, magnificent results. Uh, Clostridium uh, posterium uh, is another one. It's about 0.5 uh, to, or 0.1 to 0.5 uh, kilograms per hectare. That's also not a lot. Uh, Asperillium is about 5 to 25. Uh, the one that um, legumin leguminous plants uh, symbiosis with rhizobia is probably the one that most people are familiar with and the one that you would actually want to see in, uh, in any one of your uh, uh, legumes that you plant. And this is the one where we see that it can do as much as you can see uh, 300 pounds per the acre of nitrogen, which is quite a bit comparison to some of the other ones that are on the screen. Uh, there's, uh, I shared with you previously the, the schematic or of a, a, a chart that I took out of a textbook with all the different species of uh, different bacterial species that you can look at for inoculating your crops. If you're interested in doing uh, those things and getting, getting in that route, you can find those at the Google, uh, at the, uh, the uh, Google Drive that I had posted for the uh, ad, uh, AdventistAg.org website, and you can go to conference, and then you click on 2000, conference 2008 or something, 2018, and uh, anyhow, you'll find a list there of different things that were posted, and you can, you'll find my name uh, somewhere in about the middle of the page. Uh, okay, we're just going to have to go without it. Um, okay, so, oh, next one. So the next one is nitrogen fixation process. Uh, the energetics of what is involved with taking nitrogen gas, which is N2 gas. This is these, this, uh, these form, this is the trivalent bond, which means it takes a tremendous amount of energy to break these two nitrogen molecules apart and then ultimately make a, nitri uh, a ammonium or nitrate. So we, I, share, I spoke earlier about the Haber-Bosch process and how much energy was required. Uh, it doesn't just require uh, 1,900 kilojoules per kilogram of nitrogen, but it also needs to be done at about 400, 500 degrees Celsius, which is pretty, pretty high temperature, and uh, 100 to 200 ATM, which is real high pressure. The energy required for this is, is rather magnificent. It takes a lot of carbon to get to that point, while nitrogenase, which is the enzyme that is responsible uh, for sequestering that nitrogen, and this enzyme is excreted by these organisms, only requires about 950 kilojoules per kilogram, which is about half, less than half, which is really uh, impressive that a biological organism can actually you know, work with such efficiency. And if we look at not just uh, the nitrogen-fixing organisms, but we look at a lot of the different uh, chem chemicals that are in the soil, <coughs> If there is anything out there that, can, that has any level of, of uh, energy that you can break, uh, there's, an there's an organism in the soil that can do it. Uh, you may not be able to find a list of these organisms because a lot of these things haven't been studied thoroughly. There's still a lot out there about doing these things. There's a lot of research into what organisms can break down the bonds with the glyphosate and exactly which organism uh, you could use to break those things and release those chelated minerals. There's a lot of research going into how to do uh, toxic you know, mineral uh, 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 cleaning up when we have these big mine spills. 
How do we clean these? How do we clean these out of the soil? They're looking for organisms that can do that. So they usually go to where these uh, spills are, and they start looking for organisms that survive in these environments, and they start trying to isolate which organisms it is. So pretty much anything that's out there, there's an, uh, that any any type of bond that needs breaking could be broken with some sort of organism. But we haven't quite figured it all out yet. There's still a lot of study being done in that. So what I'd really like to focus on for uh, this hour is nitrogenase. This is an enzyme that is excreted by uh, microorganisms, particularly rhizobium and uh, frankia and the other nitrogen-fixing, uh, same thing as azotobacter, and they, uh, they're responsible for this action. Now, how exactly does that happen? What is the science behind that? If you remember, I, I, I made the uh, statement that we're going to be pretty advanced here. I'm sorry, but I did prepare this in an advanced uh, state, so we're looking, at, uh, we're looking here at some more chemistry. And how some of the stuff goes around, and I know some people don't like chemistry, but uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> you, you bear with me. We'll, we'll, we'll figure this out. Uh, so we're looking at nitrogenase, and the first step in nitrogen uh, uh, fixation is uh, 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 dinitrogenase and then uh, reductase and then nitrogenase. So this is a two-step process and where, we're re where we're seeing eight, energy, uh, eight electrons are actually exchanged and brought in with nitrogen to... Uh, uh, bring about NH3, which is ammonium. But the first step requires uh, iron. Iron needs to be uh, reduced, and it also requires energy. So this is something that has to happen down at the cellular level, and it has to happen at every single uh, nodule. So when we start thinking about what are some of the things that I need to put in the soil, what, what are other minerals? I spoke earlier about the importance of having good calcium in your soil so that you have good, healthy roots. If you don't have good, healthy roots, you're like, not likely going to get... Uh, uh, reach your maximum potential for nitrogen fixation, at, no matter what the crop is. Uh, so iron is definitely one of them. Another one is iron, you see the second step, dinitrogenase, it requires uh, uh, iron mag uh, magnesium cofactor. And these, these, uh, these minerals need to be in the soil in order for, for these biological processes to, to happen. So uh, Molybdenate is another element that you really need to have in the soil, and that is definitely a trace mineral. Iron usually you want in much higher concentrations, but molybdenate, you don't really need a whole lot. Maybe one part per million is all you, you probably are looking for in the soil. Um, there's a lot of debate as to really how much needs to be there or whether or not we should set a number, but I think most people that get into that type of soil balancing or mineral balancing are usually looking for about one part per million. Uh, sometimes you might see some people push it a little bit higher, but the thing is if you don't have any at all, which is very common in some soils, uh, or you're very, very deficient, uh, you're, you're not going to get your maximum nitrogen fixation potential. Uh, the same with iron. If iron is deficient, uh, you're going to have some problems there as well because these nutrients, these minerals are required for these processes, these biological processes. Um, I want to get a little bit into the genetics of nitrogenase. Now, we, you guys are familiar with uh, genetic engineering and GMOs and getting genes and gene splicing. A lot of people are sitting around thinking, well, wouldn't it be nice if we can get something like corn to fix nitrogen? And uh, there really is a lot of money going into trying to find a GMO corn that will fix nitrogen. And the thing is, there's 11 genes associated with producing nitrogenase as an enzyme in bacterial organisms. 11 genes, and they're tightly regulated. It is not likely that they'll ever find that, <laughs> that they'll ever be able to make that type of a corn. Um, I don't know, maybe one day I'll stand corrected, but 
I don't, as far as what's out there now and what we've seen coming out there and what I've seen, there's definitely no hope for a corn that can fix nitrogen or any other GMO species outside of the legumes that can fix nitrogen. This is something that they've really spent a lot of money in, but you have a lot of different genes and they refer to them as NIF genes and fixed genes. And you see the list here, dinitrogenase reductase, dinitrogenase, regulatory activators of most uh, NIF and fixed genes, uh, iron molybdenum cofactor biosynthesis. You have two different genes associated with that. Uh, NIF-S unknown, uh, it's not exactly sure what that gene does, but it, uh, they know that it's affiliated with nitrogen fixation and the production of, of nitrogenase. Uh, electron transfers, which is a fixed ABCX, and then regulators, et cetera, et cetera. If you're missing one of these genes, if, there's, if somehow there was a, a, a mutation of some type or somehow the, the genome wasn't copied properly during uh, the reproductive cycle, uh, you're not fixing nitrogen. You just need to lose one gene. That's how, that's how complicated this is, which is really interesting how uh, the Lord has designed some of these things. And you really got to get into a lot of genetics to understand uh, the significance of this. Types of biological nitrogen fixation. Uh, we talked about, I've talked about symbiotic and uh, asymbiotic. What exactly is this? Free, li free living organisms. I know some folks don't know what this is, so I brought some of these things in here. So we're looking at free living asymbiotic organisms. These are organisms that can fix nitrogen without energy from outside sources. And cyanobacteria is one of those uh, bacteri bacterial uh, genuses that can do it, as well as azotobacter. Those are the two most popular ones. There's probably a few other ones out there, but like I, have, I shared with you, there's trillions and trillions of different organisms out there. And uh, they've gotten to the point where we, ha we know, uh, the scientific community knows that there is no way that they can actually go out and try to name every single species in the soil. It's essentially, they, they ran out of names. They literally just ran out of names and didn't know what to do, so then they started using 16S uh, RNA sequen uh, DNA sequencing and uh, 18S uh, DNA sequencing for fungus. The first one's bacterial, the second one is fungus. Uh, so now we're starting to actually classify them that way because there's just too many names. But some of these names are still there. And when you read the literature, you'll find these names. And when you go and you purchase products, uh, they should usually have these names on there. And you can familiar, familiarize yourself with these names because it's going to mean something to you. If you're buying a product and it tells you it's got a zotobacter, you know this is a free-living organism. It's not symbiotic. It's not going to help your legume at all whatsoever. And um, don't you know, think that you can use that to make up for uh, uh, the right, uh, I'm sorry, uh, bacillus gene that you need for uh, fixing nitrogen. There's associative ones, there's rhizosphere, aspirellum, there's lichens as well. I, I think most of you guys know what lichens are. It's a green fungus that often grows on rocks. It's, a, it's actually a symbiotic relationship between the fungus and the uh, bacteria. And then uh, leaf nodules can do it it's symbiotic. You're looking at legroom rhizobia, I'm sorry. And uh, Frankia are your two main genes, and these are symbiotics specifically. And these are the ones that actually form your nodules. So your, your asymbiotic will not form any nodules with any species, but your symbiotic will. Uh, the energy required, uh, okay, so free living nitrogen fixation. Energy required to actually fix nitrogen. You're looking at 20 to 120 grams of carbon is used to fix one gram of nitrogen. That's quite a bit of carbon. So I say it's still a lot of energy, even though microorganisms can do it with half as much energy, less than half as much energy as the Haber-Bosch process, it still requires a lot of energy to fix nitrogen. Uh, combined, nitro, uh, combined nitrogen NIF genes tightly regulated, I mentioned that earlier. Uh, oxygen avoidance, uh, anaerobes, uh, some of this other stuff I think was a carryover from a previous presentation, I'm sorry. Uh, so as, associative nitrogen fixation, um, 
Again, this is a, uh, requires uh, different gases. It requires, uh, it's not symbiotic in the sense that it doesn't form uh, nodules in the root systems, but it does require other things to be present in the environment in order for it to happen. And uh, it's usually just a small portion of it. It can actually, in some cases, it can be a higher portion of the rhizosphere population, but uh, it's not usually accredited with an awful lot of uh, nitrogen fixation. Uh, but they have seen it in sugarcane and a few of other uh, globular mycete bacteria. It's a very, uh, I think there's still a lot to be understood with that, with that particular subject. Uh, let's see here. Phototrophic nitrogen fixation. So again, this is um, requiring some form of photosynthesis in order to happen. This is usually uh, can be done by some uh, bacteria uh, without the plant. So that means that these are bacterial organisms that can use photosynthesis to without a plant species there, so they're doing it themselves uh, to fix nitrogen. Uh, they're not quite as effective, but as we saw earlier in the beginning, they can still uh, sequester quite a bit of nitrogen per uh, acre. However, they are limited because they don't have the foliage that a plant would have uh, to be able to produce that much uh, energy to fix the nitrogen. And, and these uh, fall under the genus of uh, uh, azolea. Actually, these are, I'm sorry, these are some of the species that can do it. Let's see, Frankia and actinorhizal uh, plants. This is, um, Frank, Frankia is most popular for alder. I'm not sure how many of you guys are familiar with alder trees. I think a few of you are. And you know how uh, the big hype with alder trees is how much nitrogen they fix. And the thing that's really interesting about alder trees is that they're so uh, efficient at fixing nitrogen that they do not, uh, bother, they do not uh, bother to pull any of it out of the plant tissues when the, plant, uh, when the leaves die. They leave it in the leaves, so when that leaf falls down to the ground, it actually has a much higher nitrogen uh, ratios in that leaf tissue than uh, most of your other plant species. And this is one of the reasons why uh, alder is oftentimes grown in, in uh, different orchards or different forests. So they plant these, these things specifically for sequestering nitrogen because when their leaves drop, they have so much nitrogen inside of them. So if you're really looking at uh, the benefits of alder trees and symbiosis with uh, Frankia bacteria, you want to actually use that leaf because that leaf is where most of your nitrogen is going to be. Uh, let's see, we're looking at actinorhizal plant host, uh, a few more families that can do it as well as uh, what we're looking at here is a family of this of the uh, bacterial family, and then we're looking at the genus that they actually work with. Uh, this is another chart that if you'd like to understand how these things, uh, which bacterial organism works with which uh, plant species, uh, you're absolutely welcome to do more research there. Uh, we're gonna get into nodulation and how nodules are formed in legumes. This is a very interesting process because I talked a little bit earlier about the health of the roots. If we've got good, healthy roots, we should expect to have good nodulation if it is inoculated and we know that those species are either on the seed or they're in the soil. So the first, uh, some of the first steps that we want to look at is the attachment of the bacteria. If you look at the top right, you see that the root hair, which is part of the epidermal cells of the root, so I know that the image doesn't do a good job at communicating to you that it's actually a root hair. But this is actually, I'm sorry that this is a root, but this is actually a root here. And um, you see how it has different bacteria displayed on there. And, and it's very important that that bacteria be on that root, which is why you're usually much more successful at 
reaching your maximum goals of nitrogen fixation with uh, legumes if you inoculate them before you plant them. So you want to inoculate the seed, that is. Uh, one of the, the very first thing to come out of a seed when a seed germinates is essentially what's going to be the taproot. And when that seed comes out, if the bacteria is near it, it you're almost guaranteed that it's going to be on that root and form nodules uh, uh, once it actually begins to grow and the plant is mature. So the first step is getting that bacteria there and, inform and uh, forming good nodulation. Uh, rhizobium is a filamentous bacteria. That means it does have uh, filaments like hairs, if you will, tails coming out of the back, uh, which it can move around. So it does have some mobility, but it's not, I, I don't believe it can move a, a whole lot, but it does have some. And uh, one of the first things they start to do is that they start to uh, actually move uh, or excrete certain enzymes that the uh, plant will recognize. This is why they're plant specific. They have methods of communicating with themselves. So if you're using the wrong bacteria, uh, it may not work for you because what's going to happen is, is that they're not going to be able to communicate with each other. The genetics of the plant species, which, we, which is referred to as the host, and the bacterial inoculant are not going to be able to make that nodule the way it's supposed to. So this is why you have to make sure that you're using the right bacteria when you're inoculating your seeds. Uh, and you've got to make sure that it'll actually work for that uh, species. So once that starts to happen, you see the root hair, you've got a kind of a cutaway of that. You see the root hair, there's receptors on those cells that will sense it. I shared with you guys earlier, if you were here, the, um, the images of different proteins that will be on, on the cell membranes. Well, in order for those proteins to form, again, it goes back to genes that are in the genetic code. The genes of those plants have to be able to express those, uh, those proteins so that it can actually make these formations. Once it goes to the next step over, it actually starts to curl, um, kind of like a toenail, or it kind of comes around and starts wrapping around, and you have uh, root hair curls after rhizobium contacts and a stop cell growth. So the cell itself actually stops growing for a second and it curls all or for a period of time and it curls all the way uh, over like you see in a different in the next picture I don't think I can get that going I wish really wish I had something to point up there with it makes it kind of complicated but you see how it starts to curl around here and then at that point it actually starts to get into the the cells itself and this is where it starts forming nodules uh, past the epidermal root cell you end up with uh, a lot of bacteria inside of there that bacteria begins to reproduce and it'll actually start to hijack if you will the, the, the organelles inside the cell and those organelles inside that cell will actually start to produce different things and express different genes because of the bacteria. This is, it's, it's really interesting, but um, the way that this works, the way mycorrhizae and bacteria will affect these plants and form these symbioses in the root system is a lot like the same way pathogens attack our plants. There's a lot of things that are real similar, except that the pathogens are not symbiotic. Usually they're, they're parasitic or or some other mess where they're going to come in and they're going to destroy cells or they're going to kill plant tissues. But a lot of the same science, a lot of the same design is actually in this and you're seeing some of the same things. So when you start, I'm going to talk a little bit about that, I think, in the next hour. And I'll, I'll show you how some of these uh, relationships are formed. But as this starts to happen, you see the nodules that, get that uh, begin to form inside the cell. Uh, uh, I'm sorry, it's actually over here. The nodules start forming on these roots, and that's where you get those roots. Have you guys seen any images? I think I had an image up here. I'm sorry, I think it's the next one. You start to form these legume rhizome symbioses, and you start to see those. Oh, boy, that didn't come out as good as I like. It looks a lot better on my computer than it does on the screen. But 
Um, anyhow, that's actually a, a legume. I think that's clover there that has been inoculated with uh, rhizobium. And you see how you have a, a, you see how you have these uh, nodules all over the root system. It almost looks like it has some kind of a tumor or cancer or something. It looks real. Yeah, it looks like. I mean, when you look at it, you, your first instinct is, "Wow, this looks terrible." You know, this is this is ugly. But uh, no, it's really not. <laughs> it's really not. It actually is very uh, effective. And, um, and you would want to see some type of nodulation like that, except that picture didn't come out quite as good as I would have liked. Uh, and this is talking about, again, some subclass of uh, species. Yeah, oh, this is another statement. Only 15% of, uh, uh, of the legume species have even been evaluated. Uh, so we, there's still a lot that we don't understand. It's, like, it's just so much science. Uh, that still hasn't been understood, and, and, I, and I think it was the year 1500 and some change where Leonardo da Vinci came out and said, we know more about the stars, and we know more about the intercellular spaces than we know about the soil beneath our feet. And it's 2018, and that hasn't really changed much. It's amazing. We spend a lot more money as human beings in trying to figure out the stars and the sun and everything else than we do in trying to figure out the soil underneath our feet. Uh, it's, it's really amazing how much we don't know. And I, I shared with you how uh, earlier that we don't know a lot of different species. I think only a, less than 1% of the, of the uh, bacterial organisms, uh, I'm sorry, the, yeah, actually the bacterial organisms as well as fungal organisms in the soil have ever been studied scientifically. So there's a whole bunch out there that we know nothing about. And, uh, that we know practically nothing, what we do know. And some of you guys seem really impressed, like this is a lot of information, but it's really not. <laughs> in the grand scheme of things, it's really just a drop in the bucket of what could be understood um, about the bacterial, the soil bacteria. And uh, the subject uh, that we're presenting on, I was asked to do uh, soil biology. And soil biology is very complicated. I think of all the ones that I wanted to talk about, this is the one I wanted to talk about the least. <laughs> but uh, I could say an awful lot about a lot of other subjects, but this is the one I wanted to say the least about because there's so much that we don't know. And I'm, just, I'm hitting you with a lot of what we do know and a lot of ideas, but, but there's just so much that we don't know. So when, um, again, when we start looking at what might be coming down the line for antibiotics, what might be coming down the line pathogenically, since all, most all our pathogens are gonna be bacterial or fungal or viruses, uh, there's a lot we do not know. I think this is another image right here, uh, the infection process. Uh, this time we're looking at it with a different microscope. There's an attachment first, and then root hair curling, localized cell wall degradation, which uh, I, I mentioned earlier, cortical cell differentiation. Actually, what, I'll, what I meant to do was read that while you were looking at this. I'm sorry. Uh, okay, let's see. Yeah, so we have the first, the first thing uh, on the top left is attachment, then the next thing is root hair curling, and then localized cell degradation. That's actually what's happening when, the, when it starts to curl significantly. And then you see infected thread cortical cells where you have threads coming into the cortical cells of the plant root, and we start to um, uh, uh, produce uh, essentially hijacking the cell and taking control. Rhizobia released into the cytoplasm symbiosis formation, and at this point, the cell is not dead. The cell is still alive. Uh, therefore, it's going to be able to actually take in different nutrients. So this is how it will actually uh, receive uh, photosynthates from the plant. And then we have uh, bacteria differentiation and induction in nodules. And the very last step is to actually start forming those nodules. And I shared, let's see here. This image down here at the bottom right is nodule. In, in, we're looking at the actual biology of the nodule. 
is nodule endodermis cells, infection tissues, uninfected para, uh, parachymium, et cetera, et cetera, as you go through. And this is, uh, again, uh, how this is happening biologically. I, I don't know how much of this is just going over folks' heads. I really don't have a good grasp on the, uh, how many folks understand what I'm saying, and I don't want to confuse too many people. But um, Now, this is a list of taxonomy of rhizobia. I shared another one with you guys in the last hour. This is the second one. Rhizobium in roughly 30 different species that it, uh, that it actually can inoculate. So a subspecies is going to be rhizobium trifolium. So if you buy clover and it's inoculated, you should expect to see rhizobium trifolium. Uh, and then there should be a, a, a third name in there, which is going to give you the actual variety. Um, we're looking at uh, 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 rhizobium uh, melilati, or it's actually some of them refer to it as insifer melilati. This is going to be for alfalfa. And you have glycine for soybeans. And there's just a, a long list of them. It's rather amazing when you start going into I don't even bother to memorize them myself because there's just so many names that oftentimes... I mispronounce it, or, or, or you see two different species that are very similar, very similar names, but they're actually quite different. But this is, um, I think this is going to be it for the nitrogen cycle. What time are we supposed to be done? 2.45. Oh, wow. Okay, I went through that a lot quicker than I thought. Okay, so this is my last slide for this second portion of the nitrogen cycle. And at this portion, I think I would like to... Um, open the floor for, a few, uh, for uh, the last few minutes we have to any questions, because I think that some of the stuff is pretty hairy and there's a lot of questions here. Um, I guess the back was maybe first and we'll ask up front here. Uh, go ahead. So I'm trying to understand that perennials, perennial like trees, woody plants, they're looking for more of a, would it be ammonia or ammonium-based nitrogen source, whereas maybe some of the annuals are more nitrate? Uh, okay, so... The question that he was asking is, uh, are perennial woody plants looking more for ammonium than nitrate? And the, from my understanding, the answer is no. All plant species prefer a, a nitrate over ammonium. Oh. Uh, I don't know of any species that would specifically form it. I'm not saying it's not out there. I'm just saying I don't know of one. Um, so the answer to that question is no. I'm pretty sure that it's, it's nitrate. Um, you had a question up front? So how is the Okay, what a lot of folks would do is that they buy the actual inoculants, and usually it comes in what looks like a real fine powder, um, usually some gray color, off gray. And uh, when you get that, you would want to put that with, or mix that with your seeds. So if you have, you know, this is why almost most people just buy it already pre-inoculated, because it's kind of, it, it can be quite a bit of trouble, but if something that you enjoy doing, uh, and some people might be a little more nerdy that way that they want to actually inoculate their own things or they want to experiment with different things and see how it works. Uh, they would usually get your seed and then you get your inoculum, which is a fine powder, and you mix your seeds into this stuff and then you, you uh, shift it through there and you, and you separate it so that there will be some bacteria on there, usually way more than what's necessary. Do you use any water at all? You don't have to, but you can. Um, if you wanted to, say, see, with water, what happens is that as soon as you introduce water, the bacteria takes off. Um, and you don't, I guess you end up risking that you can be bringing this, some of these things back to life and forcing uh, certain biological processes with the water uh, that you may want to wait until that seed is actually in the ground and, and, and will be germinating. 
this gets into some real complicated issues. I have never personally tried it that way. The only way I've ever seen it is actually physically mixed of, of somewhat of like a powder, mixed with the seeds and then you know, separated, shifted out. Uh, and then those seeds are put into a, a drill or a planter or something like that, and they're planted out, usually a drill, if it's legumes, and, the, and then it's planted out in the field. And then when the irrigation water comes in, uh, not only will you get germination of the seed, but you'll also get your bacteria to wake up, because those bacteria are usually dormant. When you get it in a powder form, they're desiccated completely. So as soon as they reach moisture, they're going to want to take off. Enough of that sticks to the dry seed? It's, oh, yeah. Enough? I mean, oh, yeah. I, you don't need a tremendous amount. Uh, when you buy pre-inoculated seeds, sometimes you look at it and you can't even tell it's inoculated. That's why you really got to look at the bag. And then, of course, you end up developing, you know, buying products that you feel comfortable with, that you trust when you purchase those types of seeds. Um, question? What's the shelf life of an inoculant? Let's say you buy a container. You know, I've seen a lot of different numbers out there, but really you're going to have a death rate that is going to vary significantly based off of environments. Um, that's why a lot of those bottles tell you to keep it refrigerated or somehow keep it cold, um, freeze it or refrigerate it, because it will reduce the metabolic rate. When I showed you the slide, um, I remember it was the last hour hour before that, uh, on the uh, metabolic rates, uh, the activity of microorganisms in the soil, you saw that when the temperature was warmer that they'd take off. So definitely keeping them cold will help to reduce that uh, metabolic activity, which will give you a much longer shelf life. Uh, I have seen some that are good for a couple of years, and I've seen some that are good for a long time. But if you have inoculants that are really old, four, five, six years old, you know, what's going to happen is that it's not going to be quite as potent as it used to be. Some of it will die off and some of it will still be gone. But how long would it take for everything to die? I, I don't think that it would ever, that everything, every single organism would ever die. Um, otherwise, we'd, we'd all be in serious trouble. Uh, but I, I believe that there will definitely be some. You're just not going to have, maybe you'll lose 50% of it and you have a half-life on it. And I don't know, whatever the bag says, that's usually what the half-life is. It's probably the best answer I could give you. In the back over there. How do you recommend uh, inoculating fruit trees and that kind of thing? Inoculate, uh, fruit trees, well, well, if you're going to inoculate it with mycorrhizae, it would be best to inoculate them when transplanting. Uh, but if that's if it's too late to do that, then uh, I would recommend uh, something like what uh, my brother up here, James, was saying in the front. You would probably want to get some type of water uh, and put your inoculants in that and then irrigate your uh, fruit trees with those inoculants. So that's probably the next best thing you can do. And those spores, when you're dealing with fungus, you're going to be dealing with fungal spores. So mycorrhizae, you're going to get a bunch of spores. Uh, you're not going to get actual fungus. You're going to get fungal spores. And those are like tiny microscopic seeds. You can see them in a microscope at about 100x. They're very small. Uh, once you put that into some water, they're going to start moving and bouncing around. You put that into the soil, they should go down into the soil and, and, and do what you would want them to do. So how would you figure out which species to put in there? That's where you... Uh, Okay, the only information I could give you right now was it depends on the tree you're planting. Mm -hmm. And most of those fruit trees are going to be uh, uh, exomycorrhizae. And you, oh, let me see here. I don't know if I have that information. Up. But yeah, I, usually when you're buying those types of things, you can find all kinds of stuff online. Uh, the internet is amazing how much stuff you find. But 
my recommendation for you is to figure out what your rootstock is, because almost everybody has grafted fruit trees. I, I don't know anybody that's not growing grafted fruit trees. But um, if you're growing grafted fruit trees, the first thing you need to figure out is what is your rootstock. When you figure that out, then you need to uh, talk with folks that sell inoculants for orchards and then uh, start asking, hey, I got these rootstocks for these trees. What is the best of mycorrhizae that I can introduce into my uh, orchard? And uh, they'll give you a list of different things. And usually they're going to want you to buy their product and they're going to swear it's better than the other one. But really, if the genetics are the same, then it's really not any better. You just want uh, the highest number of colon colon uh, CFUs, which is colony forming units per dollar that you're paying. Uh, so some people will give you a good deal and you might get, you know, 10 billion CFUs and uh, for whatever price and maybe $100 or whatever. And the next guy will want, give you maybe 1 billion CFUs and charge you the same $100. And he'll swear that it's better than the next guy. But, you know, you really you don't know until you actually start trying it. Yeah, actually, so I'm going to repeat what he said because I heard this too. Um, I heard this out at the university, the same thing. Uh, this is Oregon State University where I heard this in the same state where they're doing it. And what he said is that there's a body of people that are actually going out and testing a large variety of inoculants that are sold, both bacterial and fungal. And they're looking to see if the product really is what it claims it is. Because there is, that's the other thing, I'm, oh, I completely forgot about this. I'm glad you brought this up because that brought it to memory. There is no, right now, there, like if you go out and you buy a bag of fertilizer and it says it's 10-10-10. You know, you're guaranteed it's going to be 10, a minimum of 10% nitrogen, 10% uh, phosphorus, and 10% potassium. Now, that's because it's governed, it's regulated by the USDA, uh, I believe it's the USDA. And, but when you go out and you buy inoculants, there is no uh, regulation on it. In other words, you can, you can put whatever you want in there. You can put your grandma's toenails in there if you want, grind it all down and tell somebody it's going to be great. And there's nobody there to really regulate it. So they were going out and, uh, and uh, you know, doing, as he said, uh, buying a bunch of different products, uh, checking them out, seeing are they really what they claim they are. Uh, I'm actually, I, f I completely forgot about that. And as far as I have heard, uh, the results still haven't been released yet. Uh, but it would be very interesting to see what is actually released because a lot of, like I said, a lot of people make a lot of promises and a lot of people both at the university level and at a lot of the commercial ag levels and uh, consulting firms are wondering, are these products really any good? Um, so it would be interesting to see what the results of that are. Yeah, we planted millions of trees without inoculants. Yeah. And some went in the forest. Yeah. So. There's a lot of stuff coming out. Like I said, I, that's why I'm not, <laughs> I'm not saying any, anything one way or the other, but that's um, what I have heard is that a lot of them are and a lot of people aren't. But in, ag, in agriculture, you'll find that a lot of people want to do a certain thing and then You'll turn around and you'll find a big group of people that don't. And you're always going to find a lot of back and forth. And there's a lot of voices. So uh, one of the biggest things I bring back is understand what you're doing. Understand the science. I, I thought I saw a hand over there somewhere. No? Okay, I'm sorry. Um, some, some of these seed companies must sell combinations. There must be combinations in some of those products because they say they're good for peas and beans. And okay, well, both peas and beans are both legumes. So uh, when they make those, they're usually just making real generalized applications. Uh, my, my, again, my, my overall overarching point that I'm trying to drive home is just check them. Be, uh, check to see if what, they, you know, what the name of that species is on that package that you received is actually viable for that. And the reason for it, again, is like the other gentleman was saying in the back, is that there's no regulation in a lot of these things. 
and you don't really know what you're getting. And um, if you're going to spend the money to do that, you at least want to know that it'll maybe work. <laughs> so uh, that's just that's my advice for that. Just because there's, I don't know, I've I've poked around. I've per just my personal experience. There's just so much stuff out there that I'm just like I I can't try them all. Um, I think even in this whole room combined, even if you've got a lot of years growing and playing with this stuff, you're not going to be able to say I've tried every product out there. Uh, there's just there's just way too much out there. So you've got a separate one for chickpea, separate one for soybean, separate one for beans, separate one for peas. Uh, th that's the exact species that are saying is favorable for it. <coughs> I have an another one I pulled straight out of the textbook that I put up previous. You can get it from the Google Drive and you'll see the same thing. A whole bunch of different species, genus and species specific for uh, a genus and species of bacteria that is specific for the genus and species of plants that they're going to be inoculated with. So you, you have to use the right species species. Um, and if you're using the generalized ones, maybe it'll still work, but maybe it won't be as effective. Maybe you won't reach the potential that you're looking for. Uh, maybe you'll have limited results. Maybe you'll have no difference at all like you were experiencing. I mean, there's just so many things out there. That's why I say this is a real, this is a really, uh, 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 complicated subject and you know it, when you get into some of these educated circles and uh, there is they get into some real heated debates about what really works and what really doesn't and uh, you know I I'm sorry I, I, I can't I can't I'm just one guy <laughs> I can't tell you everything but uh, I could I, I would inform you at least that much so that if you're getting something and you say hey look um, you know, they gave me uh, Japonicum as a species, and I'm supposed to use this on my, uh, you know, clover or something. You can see clearly that Japonicum is not going to work. It's mostly for soybeans. Um, it came out of uh, Asia, and that's why you know, Japan. That's why it's called Japonicum. <laughs> Sometimes it's straightforward. But uh, anyway, they, you know, that's where soybeans were originally originally came from. So that's where they isolated the species from. And I think it was uh, people in Japan that did it, and that's why it was named that way. Uh, but again, there's just, there's so much complexity uh, when you start dealing with these things and uh, there's a lot that is not understood. The general public is, uh, even within agricultural circles, is really limited on what information is out there. And my goal today is to give you as much information as I possibly can to get you to at least start, you know, paying attention to some of these things and, and uh, you know, being able to identify when maybe you're, you're, you're getting a good deal and when you're getting ripped off. Um, and that particular rings that you're talking about, I had another, I can't remember the name of that, but that's actually a, a pathogen. Um, and what happens is, is that every time it makes a mushroom, that's, that's, that's mushrooms are uh, essentially the reproductive organs of fungus. So the fungal hyphae will come together and they'll form a mushroom and then they'll make spores. So when those fungus die, or just before they die, is usually when they go into that uh, uh, sexual reproductive stage. Uh, so what happens is, is that it, uh, that's a pathogen. It'll start somewhere. Uh, usually this happens in grass fields. Uh, it'll do the damage it's going to do there. I, I, I can't remember. They call it something fairy ring is what it's called. I can't remember the name right now. Or fairy something ring, I'm sorry. But anyway, it, it starts somewhere. And the, the center is where the initial inoculation was. That's where the first a fungal spores landed. And then uh, it takes off from there. It'll grow, it'll die, it'll make a ring. Then those spores will start growing in that ring and then it usually works outwards because it's looking to consume uh, a certain uh, 
I can't remember exactly what it was, but it's looking to consume a certain uh, type of substrate, and I don't remember what that was off the top of my head right now. Uh, I have so much information in my head right now that I'm forgetting other things at the moment. But anyway, it's just a life cycle. Every time you see mushrooms come up in a ring like that, then they die, then it comes up again, then dies, and the ring just gets bigger and bigger, you're, you're seeing a fungal pathogen actually spread through a field is what it is. Um, it's a pathogen, yeah. And I don't remember the exact name of the pathogen. I'm sorry. I can probably get it to you a little later, but off the top of my head right now, I don't remember. It's not really a helpful thing. No, uh, but it is a problem that usually affects uh, a, a grass, uh, you know, lawns and uh, turf grass and golf courses and things like that. Okay, any other questions? I think... You're going to talk about cover crops yet? No, cover crops is... I'm going to talk about that. I don't remember. It's either tomorrow or the next day. In a, in a different session, yes. Well, maybe I'll ask you a question now. In, in Neil Kinsey's book, he said that deep plowing of cover crops, you're putting it, you're putting it out of the... It can. Uh, what, uh, I think with Neil Kinsey, that's, I think that's his green book. I remember reading that, and that, that is, in most cases, true. There are the exceptions, and usually the exceptions are in soils that are uh, very well aggregated, where you can get oxygen down that deep. Um, that's not usually the case. Usually your soils are pretty beat up and you're not going to get oxygen down that deep. So it will go anaerobic. So if you have a, a, a dense cover crop like rye and you, you mow it and then you plow it in, better plow it shallow? Uh, okay, so then another thing that you really got to, when you start using terms like shallow and deep, those are, you know, they mean something different to everybody. <laughs> they're, they're not, uh, uh, they're not def definite terms. So. Uh, you could tell me shallow, and that might mean one inch, and then you know it might mean six inches to the next guy. It might mean eight inches to the next guy. So what exactly does shallow mean, and what exactly does deep mean, is something that is left into, uh, up to interpretation. So by shallow, for me, I would think the top six to eight inches of soil. Uh, somebody else might disagree with me, and that's okay. But that mean, that's what shallow means to me. Deep to me, you're going uh, at least a foot, if not more, into the soil. Uh, that to me is deep, and there are people that might plow that. You know, they used to be that they used to plow that deep a long time ago in the, uh, what I guess now we'll call it the corn belt. But uh, that's back when it had two to three feet of topsoil. You know, those days are gone, uh, so they don't usually plow that deep anymore. But uh, for vegetable production, I would say that rotor or rotary spading or rotary tilling is uh, is usually going to not only incorporate that cover crop usually breaks those plant tissues, uh, breaks the, the crowns, or kills the crowns so that the plant doesn't come back, and makes it, uh, makes it so that that, that uh, organic matter will be broken down, and those nutrients will be mineralized and made plant available to uh, whatever crop you're growing after that. And it's not just nitrogen, but every single nutrient that's in those plant tissues will be released and made plant available. What, what do you mean by rotary? Uh, okay, I'm sorry. Everywhere in the, everywhere in the country they use, uh, like, uh, what's the other one? Rotor till, a rotor, uh, what, uh, just a rotor tiller, uh, a rotivator, uh, I think is another word. It's an attachment you put into the back of a tractor. Uh, rotary spading is more of a European, uh, Dutch or uh, Italian uh, tools that are not so commonly used in the United States, but are starting to develop quite a bit of uh, attention here. Uh, and those are made by companies uh, in the Netherlands and in the... Uh, in Italy. So, so you're saying tearing it up is better than moldboard plowing? 
you, almost anything you do is going to be better than moldboard plowing. <laughs> Um, moldboard plowing is very archaic. Um, first off, the moldboard plow was designed to be pulled by a horse. Now, if you look at the geometry of the way horses and oxen, uh, actually, I'm sorry, I think it was designed to be pulled by an oxen. But either way, when you look at the geometry of the way animals move across uh, the surface of, a, of any given field, uh, it's very different than the way a tractor works. A tractor has constant contact, right? A tractor will always be compacting your soil every time it's on the soil. It will never not be. Uh, oxen, you know, I don't know what the stance is, something like this maybe, 36-inch stance or so. you got a couple feet here, then maybe three feet or whatever. you got another pair of feet over here. They put force usually back, and then they lift that foot up and go over here. So in between the last foot and this foot, there's how much compaction? Zero. While a tractor, no matter whether it's tracks or wheels or what it has, or you got these real great big wheels they put on, on some of these tractors now, it will always have constant contact with the soil. So when we start thinking about, okay, what were the wise men of old thinking when they made something like a moldboard plow? Well, you're looking at a completely different system. Now, if you've got animal power and you want to use animal power, use moldboard plow, it's still not the best, but for something that doesn't require any fuel, eh, it's probably as good as you're going to get. Now, when we start looking at uh, equipment like diesel power equipment, uh, that's where you start getting into a lot, of, a lot of things that are coming out of the Europe um, is single pass farming. You do everything in one pass. Uh, reduction in compaction, reduction in fuel, and, uh, and uh, a better incorporation of, of cover crops throughout the soil profile. How deep you want those tools to go really depends on you know, what you decide. You know, some of them are only nine inches, some of them are really deep, but it really depends on what you're trying to do in the soils you're working. So I personally don't like moldboard plows at all. Uh, they don't really do anything but break your soil and then compact it. So when it goes again to, to till or not to till, a lot of folks are thinking of the moldboard plow. So there's some folks, there's a lot of things that people, ideas that folks get in their heads when it comes to tillage and what that means to you. Uh, to some people, tillage means the moldboard plow. Uh, that's not what it means to me. I think it's a little more complicated than that. So if we were going to say that tillage is a moldboard plow, I would say, no, do not use it. I, I, I would not want to use that. Um, and there's a lot of reasons. And I don't have, I have some images, but I don't have them with me. But they, they actually show how cover crops and uh, soil amendments are distributed through the soil when you plow it versus when you use a, ro a rotor tiller rotivator or whatever you like to call it versus uh, just disc plowing or chisel plowing versus spading. So you start looking at all these different things, and what you'll see is that when you, when you a moldboard plow just takes the soil, turns it upside down. That's it. It doesn't do anything else. So all that stuff that was on the surface is now just sitting still in high concentration in certain pockets underneath. It really doesn't accomplish much. And then to get that soil ready for seeds, you've got to drive over that thing, uh, I don't know how many times, disking it. And then you've got to plant whatever crop you're going to plant on it. So you get a lot of passes. You can easily get 9 to 12 passes on a given you know, field uh, or portion of that field if you're going to use that type of uh, thinking. And by the time you're done getting that field right, you've already compacted it. And it really doesn't do you any good to have plowed it to begin with. This is where I get back to intelligent tillage. So now we start looking at different tools. Let's just say we go to the, well, we'll just say we go to something like a chisel plow. All right, that's another popular one that is used out there. Let's look at chisel plows. Chisel plows don't really, 
mix anything in the soil. They just get buried and they just break the soil. That's all they're doing is opening. You're not, you know, the name suggests that you're plowing because you call it a chisel plow, but are you really plowing? Not really. You're just cracking the soil open like a subsoiler, but not quite as serious and more closely spaced together. So then let's go to another implement. Let's say we use rotary tiller. Uh, rotary tillers are usually spin very fast. I mean, those things are just, they're really cranking it. Uh, the problem with rotary, well, the good things with rotary tilling is that you break your soil, you incorporate these cover crops. If you throw amendments down, it'll incorporate that too. Usually the soil looks real beautiful when you're done and then it quickly compacts. I mean, almost the next day or the first rainfall, it all compacts again. Uh, but the problem, the real problem for me with rotary tilling is that it's too violent. Uh, it's too quick and it incorporates too much oxygen, which is going to wear away your organic matter. So it has its pros, it has its cons. It's your decision whether or not you like to use those things. I, uh, but um, I'm kind of impartial to it. Rotary spading is much, much slower. It's kind of like mixing dough. Uh, it moves slowly, breaks the soil up and then it keeps going. It breaks the soil up and then it keeps going. Uh, the whole time it's breaking the soil real deep and uh, it's incorporating uh, your cover crops and any amendments you may have added. And when you come back to it, it's gone down a lot of them 15 inches deep, bre breaking that soil open, incorporating and building your topsoil again. And one of the key things to building topsoils is, yes, you can get some of those things anaerobic, but the problem with moldboard plow deep tillage is that if you deep you plow deep with a moldboard plow, all that stuff like uh, Kenzie's book explains, or Kenzie explained in his book, will go deep down into an anaerobic uh, layers, and you end up with very little up above in the aerobic layers, uh, while a spader will mix it thoroughly within the entire, uh, entire you know, depth of that tool uh, or that implement, and you'll get better, uh, yeah, some of it might be an anaerobic, but you want some of these anaerobic bacteria going. And some of the uh, aerobic bacteria will also be fed. So you're feeding the soil thoroughly through the soil profile. And it's why I really prefer that uh, over the other tools that are out there. The rotary spader, there's also the vertical tine tillage, like on the BC. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they call that. Yeah. Um, yeah, I didn't even bring those up, but those are just miniature versions of... Some of the, yeah, some of the other ones. And I mean, whether you're tilling it, you know, it doesn't matter what, whether it's on the X axis, the Y axis, the Z axis, or any other axis. If you're moving the soil that quickly, you're going to destroy, uh, if you remember all these, oh, I don't have it in here, I'm sorry. If you remember all the uh, organisms that I mentioned that were in a, in a square meter of soil, there's a lot of organisms in there. Um, if you use something that's slower, uh, you don't, you won't kill as many of them. But if you're in there and that thing is cranking 540 RPMs and then you actually look, I forget what the math was, but boy, those things spin fast. Uh, they spin real fast and they kill just about everything that's there. And uh, so when I do use a rotor tiller, I actually like to run it at about 250 RPMs instead of the 540. I just spin it a lot slower. But I see folks that really just crank the tractor to all it's got and they drop it as deep as they can. And by the time they're done, um, practically nothing but bacteria is alive in there because <laughs> they killed most of the fungus and, and organisms and mice and critters and beetles and everything else that's in there. Yeah. Whenever you're looking at tillage, you gotta have some I, I, we've been out of time for quite a while now, so let's go ahead and take a break. Um, we'll get back together. Uh, I guess since it's 2.53, we're supposed to start at 3 o'clock. Uh, 
Uh, let's just get back together at uh, uh, 3.05 or so. We'll give a 10-minute break, a little bit more than 10 minutes, 12-minute break. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.